Thank you, Jesus. Glory be to God. Amen. Once again, we want to welcome everyone to this Sunday morning services coming to you from World Outreach Church for All Nations in Lawrenceville, Georgia, where we're still observing all the health guidelines, including social distancing. Uh, we'd like to welcome all our friends and families from around the world. We are a church that's building strong families and serving global communities. And if you were here with us last Sunday, you realize that we began a series of teaching that we are going to continue this morning on race, relations, and reconciliation. Race, relations, and reconciliation. And this morning, or rather last week, I used the subtitle, America at Crossroads. And for this morning, I'm going to move a step further and use the subtitle, How Did We Get Here? How Did We Get Here? Race, Relations, and Reconciliation. Now, let me just say this to a lot of people who are in anxiety and want to get quickly to the end of the story, and I've been getting text messages and good, well-intended uh, uh, feedback from people across the globe. Uh, let me just say to you, chill. Take a chill pill. We did not get here in a hurry, yeah. and therefore the solution that we all desire will not come in a hurry. We may do things now that we should do. Uh, I agree with the peaceful protest that's going on. Yes, we should do all of those things, but I just want to let you know that it took God several thousand years after Adam fell before the Savior came on the scene. 4,000 years to be exact. Amen? So this morning, we're going to continue on this journey. How did we get here? So if you just go with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Notice Jesus did not say you are the light of the church. He said you are the light of the world. Amen? And so before I go forward this morning, let me take a step backward for a quick little bit to just give a very brief, brief recap from last Sunday. So last Sunday, I made four general statements. Number one, I said that the spirit of hate is being manifested in violence, in murders, and in racism. Number two, I said that we condemn the structure, systems, and institutions that's enabling this hatred. And I made a point to note that our enemy is not the white people, nor the police, men or women. Number three, we support the statement that says black lives matter. Not the organization, 
Because there are many things within the network in their manifesto that are contrary to scriptures in my personal belief. Thank you. And lastly, number four, I said that the church is the salt and the light of the world. And that's where I want to pick up the message this morning. How did we get here? Now, for you and I today, we might not truly appreciate the value of salt as it was in the ancient world, which it could not be underestimated. Salt was very, very valuable. The Roman soldiers received their wages in salt. Think about that. The Greeks considered salt to be divine. The Mosaic law required that all the offerings presented by Israel to contain salt. The disciples themselves, to whom Jesus spoke these verses, they understood the metaphor when Jesus told them that they were to be the salt and the light of the world. Now, while the universal importance of salt as, is not as readily apparent in our modern world, in other words, today we don't really see the real importance. In fact, many diets are saying don't eat too much salt. You need to, uh, if you have high blood pressure, they say don't eat salty food, don't do this. So salt does not have the same relevance to us today as it did back then. However, the mandate that Jesus gave regarding being the salt and the light of the world is still relevant and applicable to us today. So now, I want to examine why. Why did Jesus use salt in this context? Some theologians think it's, it's because the whiteness of salt represents the purity of a believer. Now, I don't know about those theologians now because we have pink salt, and all, I don't know what they will say about that now. Others say its flavoring properties imply that Christians are to add divine flavor to the world. Still, others believe that Christians are to sting the world with rebuke and judgment, the way salt stings an open wound. <laughs> Another group asserts that as salt, Christians are to create a thirst for Christ. Salt, however, has another vital purpose, which is probably what the Lord Jesus had in mind when he gave that statement. What is this purpose? It stops decay. He meant that all of his disciples were to serve as preservatives, stopping the moral decay in a sin-infected world. I remember the days that I go to my barber shop, Miss Nikki. Uh, and you guys know what, what's hap what happens at the barber shop. It's a place of banter, joking, all kinds of cussing all over the place. But I remember whenever I step through the doors of that barber shop, Miss Nikki will announce to the entire shop, Pastor is in the house. And for those 30 minutes that I sit on a chair, 
all sanity returns to the house. Amen? So this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, we are the salt of the earth. It was for this same reason in Numbers 35 verse 2 where God told Moses that the Levites who were the priestly tribe in Israel were to be assigned cities among the rest of the Israelites so that the power and the presence of God would not just be when they go to the temple worship but that on a day-to-day basis, as they carried out their duties and do their businesses, those Levites became a remembrance to the rest of the Israelites about the power of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, and the word of God. So the Levites were to sanitize the rest of the Israelites by living among them. So when Jesus said that you and I are the salt and the light of the world, he's saying to you and I, when you recognize who you are and whose you are as the child of God, whether you're an engineer, you must recognize you're first the child of God who is an engineer. If you're a school teacher, you must recognize you are the child of God who is a school teacher. If you're a doctor in healthcare practice, you are the child of God who is into healthcare or a doctor. No matter what you do, as a student, you're first a child of God who is a student. No matter what you do as a businessman, you are first the child of God who is in business. If you're in politics, particularly politicians, hear me, you are a child of God who is in the political arena. If you're a legislator, you are a child of God who is now in the legislator. The problem is when we miss those two identities. When you think I'm an engineer who happens to be a Christian. I'm a teacher who happens to be a Christian. I'm a politician who happens to be a Christian. You got it all wrong. You are, you are in an identity crisis. And that's why we are not being preservatives. Those first disciples though would have been intimately familiar with this function of salt. Why? Because they were fishermen. I got an amen there. Hallelujah. Praise God. Those first disciples would have been intimately familiar with this function of salt because they were fishermen. Now, why is that? Without refrigeration, the fish they caught would quickly spoil and rot unless they were packed in salt. Thank you, Brother Alex. Again, let me say that again. Those first disciples would have been intimately familiar with this function of salt. Why? They were fishermen. Without refrigeration, the fish they caught would quickly spoil and rot unless they were packed in salt. Once salted, though, the fish could be safely stored and then used when needed. So Jesus' intention is that Christians as salt are to, be counter, are to counteract the corruption that is in the world, to inhibit the power of sin to destroy lives. This, in turn, creates the opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed and to be received. Now, what happens 
when we stop being sought. I'm going to address that in a minute. So, Jesus did not only say, we are the salt of the earth. He also said, we are the salt and the light of the world. What does that mean? To be the light of the world means to illuminate, to make visible. Our lives are to be an ongoing witness to the reality of Christ's presence in our lives. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul was admonishing the Philippian believers. He said they are to shine in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So when Jesus said that we are the light of the world, that word light is the same word that Paul used in Philippians 2.15, meaning a beacon, a beacon, a beacon like the light that is on a lighthouse. A lighthouse is a navigational aid to safe harbor. It warns of danger. It provides hope for those who have lost hope. So the point here is, every day, me and you as believers are surrounded by people groping around in darkness, separated from God who loves them. So God wants to use you and I as the salt and the light of this world to be like a beacon in a lighthouse to show the way to him. Now, the amazing thing about this metaphor is the beauty of how Jesus used it. Now, to really appreciate this, you may have to go to Matthew chapter 4, and I won't go there, I'll just say it in paraphrase. Jesus, in verse 18, had just called four of his disciples who were fishermen. So now, in trying to establish them, he says to them, you are the sword and the light of the world. To those men, they understood very, very much so what Jesus was trying to convey. Because the issue of salt and light were both activities at sea that the disciples who were fishermen recognized. They were familiar with the fact that when they fished, if they did not pack the fish in salt, it would rot. But we also know from Luke chapter 5, verse 5, that they fished a lot at night. <laughs> Which means, after having spent hours at sea at night, there is a possibility of them losing their orientation. Not knowing where they are. And they did, not, they did not have Google GPS at that time. So the only pointer that helps their navigation to get their sense of bearing was the bacon that supplied by the lighthouse. They had a clear understanding that as long as they can see that light, they make it back safe to the shore. So to them, Jesus said, you are the salt and light of the earth. In other words, you preserve the world I created and you illuminate for that world who I am. And I'm saying to us this morning, that message, that mandate is still relevant and applicable to us today. Now, how does this fit in all that we've been talking about, race, relations, and reconciliation? And in particular, how did we get here? This past January, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Ghana visiting with Pastor Nitete. And as part of that visit, we went to Cape Coast 
castle and dungeons, which was built by the British in 1665, that served as the headquarters of the transatlantic slave trade. The biggest slave port in all of West Africa. This was the place where about 1,500 African slaves were held at the time, where they spent anywhere from two to three months while awaiting to sail. For about a period of 200 years, the estimate range that, be, that the British shipped between 5.5 to 6 million Africans through the door of no return. There are no adequate words to describe the living condition. The conditions in which those slaves were kept is beyond degradation. Not to talk of the brutal killing and ongoing rape that took place there on a regular basis. And for those slaves who were reluctant, who did not toe the line, they simply tossed them over to be eaten by sharks. Now, many times during this visit, my wife and I, I cannot tell you how many times we, we, we took a, an emotional break just to, to, to just cry and to just weep, to think how wicked can the heart of man be? Uh, the Bible is so true when it says the heart of man is desperately wicked. How can we know it? Now, let me just say this. Let me take a pause moment to let you know this, that during the tour, as the tour guide, I said, where did these slaves come from? How did this even happen to begin with? And, and, and it's important because of integrity for full disclosure that you understand that yes, there were white slave traders, but the Africans were the ones who sold them. Not only that, the slave trading was already, already flourishing in Africa through inter-tribal wars. And the Africans saw their white slave traders as, uh, as partners to help their problem. What problem? You see, because when they captured these slaves in their tribal wars, they had to keep them someplace. And as they fought more wars, there was more prisoners of wars captured, and they needed more place to store them. So when the white slave traders came, it was an opportunity for them to stop building bonds and uh, uh, slave prison uh, places to just expediently get rid of those slaves so they don't have to keep anybody. In exchange for the slave trade, the white came to get the slaves and they gave the African lords, if you will, L-O-R-D-S, the African lords, they gave them gunpowders and whiskey. Now, why is this story poignant? Why is this story poignant? Why is it important for us to understand all of this? As we tour this dungeon, the last place that the tour guide took us to was a church that was on the property. Wow. And he explained to us that beneath the church, like in the basement of that church, was the special dungeon that they held slaves who were rebellious. 
that any slave that they put in that dungeon underneath the church basement had been summarily sentenced to death automatically. Mind you, picture this. So this was what happened. Before the slave masters sailed across the Atlantic, they go to this church and prayed and invoked the blessings of God on the sailing that was about to take place. All the while, in the basement, men and women condemned to death within the dungeon. The church did this. Now, years before January, I went to Gori Island in Senegal. Again, that was one of the ports where slaves were shipped to the Americas. The same thing happened. In fact, the church there was just about, well, 20, 25 feet to where the uh, slave masters would just go across and walk in there and get on the boat and leave. So the church has a bad rap. Rather than being the salt of the earth and the light of the earth, we were culpable in the evil that's gripped our world. And if we are to fix this problem, it ought to begin from the church who refused to obey the mandate that God gave. It has been said, that slavery could never have existed without the consent of the church. The church sided with evil rather than the word of God. And sadly enough, it's still happening today. We're going to get there in a minute. In his book, Blacks in Colonial America, Oscar Rice reports that ministers such as Thomas Bacon openly taught their congregations that slavery was an institution sanctioned by God and that black members were to be submissive and obedient because it was the will of God. Somebody preached that. It all started when preachers got into the league with slave owners and thus the church sanctioned slavery. Slavery thrived because the church gave its approval for slave owners to practice slavery while continuing to call themselves Christians. I'm going to read to you now a recent confession that was made by the Church of England. It should be on your screen in a moment, but I'm going to read it. The Church of England just made this statement about 10 days ago. And here it says, The Church of England and the Bank of England apologized on Thursday night for their historic links to slavery through vicars, bishops, and bank governors who benefited from the trade in the 19th century. The church said its links to slavery were a source of shame as it emerged as cause of churches and clergymen 
and even a bishop could have been funded by compensation paid to plantation owners. Unbelievable. I'm glad they made a confession, but I wish they did that two centuries ago. Again, the church played a role in the slaughter of over six million Jews in Nazi Germany. Time will not permit me to go into all the details of that, but I'm going to read to you another statement. This one called The Great Scandal. Because while Hitler was doing what he was doing, he had the full support of the church. Here goes The Great Scandal. Christianity's role in the rise of the Nazis. Christianity had the capacity to stop Nazism before it came to power. Can you hear that? Can you believe that? That we could have averted six million deaths. We could have stopped it before it came to power and to reduce or moderate its practices afterwards, but repeatedly failed to do so. Because the principal churches were complicit with, indeed, in the pay of the Nazis. Most German Christians supported the Reich, that is Hitler. Many continued to do so in the face of mounting evidence that the dictatorship was depraved and murderously cruel. What in God's name were they thinking? Similarly, not too long ago in apartheid South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Church used theology to argue for the support of apartheid in South Africa. What, these guys reading the Bible? And eventually, the Dutch Reformed Church became the official religion of the National Apartheid Party. My goodness. I just wonder how Jesus feels about all of this. Thankfully, the Dutch Reformed Church condemned apartheid as seen in 1989. So let me just recap it for a minute, very quickly. Number one, we saw the church complicit in the Atlantic slave trade. Gori Island, Senegal, Cape Coast, Cape Coast Accra, Ghana, Badagri, Nigeria. We see the church complicit in the slaughter of the Jews in Nazi Germany. We see the church complicit in apartheid South Africa. Today, 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 the religious right in America and the evangelicals in the United States of America are repeating the same sins that the earlier church had committed. Slavery existed because the church gave its approval for slave owners to practice slavery in the same way the evangelicals are given cover 
to a president that's lying to us that is a believer. Yeah. The evangelicals today are throwing their unconditional support behind this lawless president. While America was boiling over with anger and peaceful protests of racial injustice, the big church leaders who regularly speak to this president were in hiding. Nothing is heard from them. Crickets. Crickets. While our president is telling us that everything is right with COVID-19. It's all under control. And the health guideline that's coming from that same White House said so we should wear masks and social distance. This law and order president, quote and unquote, decided to hold a rally, 6,000 people in Oklahoma. No mask, no social distancing. And these, my evangelical friends, who have his ears, who is towing his line on law and order, cannot call him to order. They cannot speak to they cannot speak truth to power because they are corrupt. I used to shout this years and years ago back in Nigeria. I told Nigerians back then, 15, 20 years ago. I said, the problem in the nation is the problem inside the church. Yes. I preached that all over the country. What we saw in the nation is what existed in the church. You fix the church, the nation will settle itself. Yes. I kept on telling them that. They didn't listen. So it gets worse in the nation. I said, listen, don't, don't look at the nation. Don't, don't talk about the president. Don't talk about the governors. Go back to your church. Go and see your pastors. This president had the audacity to go into a church in Arizona, Dream Church. Packed out. No masking, no social distancing. And they were surprised that there's a surge of corona. And now he insists to take away his convention from North Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida. Because that governor there will not budge. If you're going to come here, you toe the line. Public safety is of importance. You don't mouth one thing from, the, from your bully pulpit and do something else. We are not going to go for that. Now, I want to show you a video. Because I had already prepared this message before someone sent me this video. And it's a corroboration of the corruption that is in the church. I watched the video about five minutes long. I said, wow, this is what I've been saying. Now, let's see the video. Thank you. You, along with Pat Robertson, are one of the very few white evangelicals to criticize the president for this at a time when there's obviously great unhappiness, anxiety, and grief uh, in the country. Why do you think that is? I think first it points to the moral collapse in my own religious community. Among my fellows, uh, there was a Faustian deal made with Donald Trump, which went something like this. Uh, Donald Trump promised, I will give you everything you've ever wanted on your laundry list 
of political deliverables if you give me what I want and demand, and that is religious cover. I need you to say that I'm blessed of God and that everything I've done is good. He defended the photo uh, in front of St. John's Church with the Bible by saying, a lot of Christians think it's a great photo. And that's what he needs in the deal. And we made that deal with him. And uh, so there's a moral vacuum. There's an inability to muster the moral courage to stand up to this. I was delighted to see what Pat Robertson said. The fact that he did speak out was terribly important, though a little late in the game, uh, but he did. But my other colleagues uh, have not been able to do that for a number of reasons. One is because they would be assailed by their own constituents now for doing so. But the other is they would lose access, instant access. They know that Donald Trump will throw them under the bus, will lock them out of the White House, will uh, insult them and disown them in an instant if they displease him. They are aware of that. And so they have to play uh, this game very, very carefully. They're on very thin ice. They want uh, what they still have outstanding on the list, which is a final appointment to the Supreme Court to give them a, a rock-solid conservative majority. They're not going to let anything endanger that, even this kind of supremely offensive behavior. We keep hearing, particularly from political figures, that privately the conversations are different. Um, I don't know how much credence to give to that because the fact of the matter is if you are a public figure, your public utterances are your record. But I do wonder what kinds of conversations that you have with fellow evangelicals because quite in, in public, the support is as strong as ever. I mean, you know, Ralph Reed, who's kind of taken over the mantle of the the, the, uh, the moral majority, as it were, the sort of the politically most active evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals, social conservatives, you know, very strongly defending it. I was just sort of curious about that. Their support has been as strong publicly as ever. Are the conversations privately different? Well, you know, a year, two years ago, I used to hear my colleagues, they would whisper, you know, I know the guy's way over the top. I know he's terribly offensive. I know he's way too visceral, uh, he's too impulsive, he doesn't know us, he's not religious. Look, we know who he is, he's a secularist, he's not a believer, but he's good for us. And who else is going to get this done? And it's going to take a fighter like him to get it done. Now I don't hear that much anymore. And that that's even more distressing to me because... What it seems to suggest is that a kind of final conversion has taken place, at least in their thinking, if not in their hearts. And if it is in their hearts, then I, 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 I fear for them. I mean, in one sense, just in terms of reclaiming their moral integrity, uh, regaining a sense of ethics and what is right and wrong. And if that, if they have lost that ability to discern that, then they are indeed in very grave danger personally, 
certainly as a community. I mean, we know what the history of demoralized churches are. Uh, they quickly become relics of history and not good ones. Uh, and then, of course, there's, I'm still a believer in salvation. I think we have to have a certain standing before God. And if we lose that, we've lost everything. The Bible even reminds us of that. It says, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world but lose his soul? That's the ultimate loss. I do know that the Southern Baptist Convention just had their convention. It is the nation's largest Protestant denomination, and they show a membership decline. It's the 13th straight year of decline. It's the largest single-year decline in more than a century. What are you seeing? And that's true almost across the board, and especially when you look at under age 45. And the younger, the worse the statistics become. Young people especially are leaving evangelical churches in droves. Hallelujah. It speaks for itself. Now, I just want to call out a few of my brothers that the video did not call out. The right reverend Robert Jeffries of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. I see this guy on CNN, Fox News, all day long, defending all of the policies of this president. Now, to his credit, he made a very tepid statement in his church. But I have not seen him on Fox News or CNN to denounce some of these practices by this president. How about the right reverend, Franklin Graham, of the esteemed Samaritan Purse, the son of the highly esteemed and credible Reverend Billy Graham of blessed memory. Billy Graham will turn over in his grave to hear and see some of the things that's happening right now. Because Christianity today came out a few months ago to repudiate and denounce the moral practices of this president. But Franklin got up and defended the president against his own father's publication. Franklin Graham runs a very credible organization, the Samaritan Post. They do a lot of good things around the world, and I commend them for that, and I thank God for it. But when it comes to the issue of racial injustice, yeah. these men cry about pro, being pro-life only as it pertains to life within the womb. Because once you are born, and you happen to a black man, it's all over. No, don't call yourself pro-life, call yourself pro-embryo. I'm challenging Franklin Graham to live up to the legacy of Billy Graham of blessed memory. That is what America needs right now. 
We don't need all these cowards who is brown-nosing to get a crumb of bread from the table of Donald Trump. Oh, how about Paula White? The pastoral counselor who up to last year was pastoring a large African-American population church. Running after a man, seeking the applause of man rather than the approval of God. If you don't repent, your days are numbered. All these hypocrites, they are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith according to what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. The Pharisees were busy tidying over their plants and their herbs. And Jesus said, well, I'm not saying not to do that. But how about the weightier matters of the law? Now, just paradventure, as I'm closing, let me just say this to you. Because some of you already say, ah, Pastor Bank must be a Democrat. It's against the GOP. Blah, 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 blah. How wrong can you be? I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I am a proud child of the living God. I'm not for or against any political party. I am an independent looking to be used by God however it deems fit. For my Democratic friends who think the Republicans are the problem, let me quickly remind you the city of Chicago has been run by Democrats for 89 years. And that's why we have the highest blacks killing blacks. What do you say to that? Detroit has been run by Democrats for 59 years. And it's no better now than when it first began. Oakland, California, run by Democrats 43 years. St. Louis, Missouri, run by Democrats 71 years, older than many of you that's listening to me this, this evening. This morning. Milwaukee, you want to hear this? Run by Democrats for 112 years. Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, run by Democrats for 42 years. Now you are disbanding the police department. Why didn't you do that two years ago? Or five years ago? Or ten years ago? When you had the opportunity to do so? Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Yeah, uh -huh, I know. Democrats have been running it for 68 years. So don't tell me that this racial problem and this inequity and all of the ills of America is a Republican problem. No, it's an American problem. 
And the church is the only one that has the answer. And I'm calling on the church to arise that we should become the salt and the light of the world as Jesus planned for it to be. Don't get caught up in political ideology. Rather, get caught up in the mandate of the gospel. And so I close. The solution, like I said at the beginning, is not in the sprint, it's not in the hurry, and that's why I'm encouraging you, please stay tuned as we continue to bring more installments of this message. It's many more to go. It's a complex issue, but God has the answer. But for a start, for a start, I want to challenge the church. We need to repent. I said this last Sunday, but perhaps it didn't really catch. We cannot be a part of the solution when we're a part of the problem. Many of us, many of us have different thoughts, different things we've believed about people of other ethnicities that will disqualify us from being a change agent. That's why it starts. We need to uproot, demolish, cast down every stronghold of ethnic hatred or dislikement or any sort of thing. Anytime we look at anyone else other than ourselves in a demeaning way that does not glorify God, it's a sin. That's where it starts. I want to pray. I want to ask God to help us to have an inflection for, to consider this, uh, what I just told us. Acts 26, 20 says, repent, turn to God, and do works fitting of repentance. Repent meaning change your mind. Turn to God means embrace what Jesus said. Now, this is very important, especially for our younger people. I hear your cry. I know you're hurt. I know you're angry. I hear you. I hear you. I get it. But please hear me. Repent means change your mind. Then it says, turn to God. Turn to God before you march. Turn to God before you protest. Turn to God. Let God direct your protesting. Let him direct legislative action. Let God direct it. Because except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Repent means change your mind. The problem is not the white man. It's not the black man. It's not the brown person. The problem is hatred. It's a spirit. Repent. Then turn to God. Embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. The absolute truth and nothing else. And then bring forth works fitting to repentance. Then you can go march. Now you can go protest. Now you can drive legislation. Why? Because your heart is with God first. And so, Father, I thank you for this opportunity for us to lay our hearts bare before you. Thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit shedding your light into the deep recesses of our heart. The prejudice, the bias, the discrimination, the dislike, the way we demean one another, even in our private jokes, that is not funny to you. My God, help us. Cleanse us of this unrighteousness. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, let's call a spade a spade. The enemy, the culprit is Satan walking through hatred. And so, Lord God, we thank you that we will not allow our members to be used as an instrument of darkness any longer. I will not use my mouth or my heart to demean another man or woman from another ethnicity. In the name of Jesus, I receive them as my brother and my sisters. And I thank you for the diversity in your household. Thank you, Papa. We honor you. We bless you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Bless God. And I'll see you again next Sunday. And don't forget, on Wednesday night and Tuesday night, we are praying. Thank you, Pastor Abike.